I think it really comes down to the amount of content that's created and the amount of authenticity you can actually see from the outside in, especially because consumers today are not stupid. They can look at one of these brands and know right away if this is a brand with a celebrity slapped on it or if it's really something that's created from the ground up. And you're saying the Gwen Stefani one didn't work out because the brand wasn't authentic to her. I don't want to say it didn't work out, but if you look at the similar web numbers, they're nowhere close. Yeah, completely different story. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. All right, Moyes, I know we talk about Tapcart every episode. Tapcart this, Tapcart that, download Tapcart, sign up for Tapcart. The reality is apps are not for everybody, okay? In fact, it's less about the revenue and more about the repeat customer purchase rate that you get out of having an app. If you have 15% or more in your repeat customer rate, then an app makes sense for you. If less than that, not much. And in fact, right now, if you go to tapcart.com slash limited, their team will literally model the incremental revenue that you will make from an app so you wouldn't even launch an app without knowing you have revenue coming your way. So again, go to tapcart.com slash limited and they will model it out for you. Okay, Nick, technical stuff done. Season four, episode one. Dude, I'm so pumped. I feel like we had a break for a week and you know, 400 things happened and we got to talk about so much stuff. I went to Shop Talk. You went to some creator conference in like Nashville. Outdoor Advertising Association of America annual conference. And actually didn't learn much, to be honest, about out of home because I was stuck on phone calls a lot of the time, but um, had a very fun panel with uh, Farmer's Dog, Roman, Coterie, and Meta, actually. Okay, awesome. Bunch of stuff to dive into today. In fact, we're recording today and then again tomorrow because we've got so much stuff to talk about since we've been gone for a while. Today, we're going to go through creator brands. A big acquisition that just happened in the beauty and personal care space. The first, you know, billion dollar acquisition of the year, as far as I know. A lot of information that came out of Stripe. And then we're going to go through um, some other public market stuff happening and a quick lightning round. So a bunch of stuff to chat about today. I think the first thing we're chatting about is your one of your favorite things, which is creator brands. Oh, yeah. I saw this article come out that said basically this company called Rob's Backstage Popcorn. Have you ever heard of this popcorn company? I have not. They like uh, launched a while ago, and I think they just raised like $7 million. Okay. They announced that they raised $7 million, I think this week or like, you know, last week. So very, uh, very recent. And they were launched by like the Jonas Brothers or in collaboration with the Jonas Brothers. They've done other collaborations. So it's already a popcorn, like, you know, backed by celebrities. They did a collaboration with Kelly Clarkson for a barbecue flavor. And of course, one of the Jonas Brothers is married to Priyanka Chopra. I don't know anything about the Jonas Brothers. Nick Jonas. They've just married so well. Everyone they've married, I'm like, oh, I wanted that. I was hoping to marry that girl. <laughs> and so they married Priyanka Ch One of them married Priyanka Chopra, and they collaborated with her for an Indian spice flavor. So they're like doing celebrity-backed popcorn brand in collaboration with other celebrities, which is genius of them. I think it's so smart of them. They're like, you know, our baseline is celebrity. Our collaborations are with other celebrities. And it's growing the brand. Like, I mean, wh when was the last time you heard of a popcorn brand raised a ton of money? This one just raised $7 million. And there are 8,000 stores nationwide. Yeah, the closest thing recently I've heard is Chris Paul 
I think it was Chris Paul, basketball player, launched a popcorn brand with GoPuff. They slapped his face on and basically tried to do the whole thing of, you know, actually the, the thing about these creator brands that work so well, the formula is like insane top of funnel, which basically comes completely free combined with mass distribution. So whether that's Walmart, which is heavily rolling out, you know, YouTuber brands right now, or it's GoPuff or it's Target, the combination of celebrity top of funnel with mass distribution has just been on fire. And there's a couple that I invested in recently that are about to do the exact same thing that I can't wait to talk about. But this strategy works extremely well. So, uh, you know, there's a couple other brands. I I'm not sure. Are you an investor in Feastables? You just work with Feastables? What's going on with you in Feastables? Yeah, both. Um, so I did a, uh, an investment in Feastables, and then we also worked on their launch and everything there. So the reason I thought of this was, I was like, was Brian Lee right all along? Uh, do you know Brian Lee? Yeah, from Honest? Yeah. So he started doing this a, a two decades ago, or, you know, uh, more than a decade ago. He did Honest with Jessica Alba. He did Shoe Dazzle with like Kim Kardashian before I think Kim Kardashian was what she is today. And he did Legal Zoom with Robert Shapiro, who was OJ Simpson's defense attorney. That is one of the craziest B2B collabs, <laughs> like <laughs> mixtape of the year in B2B. Yeah, like he's doing a collab. He's creating, a, and you know, he was a lawyer. The re I got to know him a long time ago. He used to be a lawyer at a huge firm in New York City called Skadden left uh, and started doing these things. And, you know, I got to know him because I was a lawyer and sort of tried to chat him up in that respect. And, you know, his first startup was LegalZoom. I'm not sure if I remember this story correctly, but I met him in Expo West a really long time ago. And he was like, look, people always ask me, why did I sell LegalZoom? And I tell them, look, I didn't have any money. Now I have money. But back then I didn't have any money. And I made $90 million when I sold LegalZoom. So it was a huge fucking home run for somebody who used to be a lawyer. Uh, he's like, with Honest, I could try and hit a billion-dollar grand slam. But you know, when you're starting out, it's sort of hard to sort of swing for, to swing for the fences and hit a grand slam. And you're much more happy and willing to take a bunch of money off of the table rather than go for the billion-dollar exit. And so, anyway, I thought of him when I was seeing this with uh, with Rob's backstage popcorn. I was like, was he right all, all along? Like, was he just a little bit early with some of his brands, although they still did really well? Um, you know, Rob's Backstage Popcorn, we talked about Mr. Beast. Do you know Rare Beauty? Do you know where Rare Beauty is? Do I have notes for you? You have notes for me. Okay, awesome. Yeah, like there are so many of these celebrity brands and you're right, that top of funnel just comes from Instagram or YouTube or whatever they're celebrity, wherever they're really gr uh, good at. When LegalZoom started, there was no Instagram and YouTube didn't exist the way it does today. When Shoe Dazzle existed, there was either Instagram was young or didn't exist the way that it does today. There was no YouTube the way that it exists today. And I think he might have been early, but I think this the strategy that he had has been, generally worked for a lot, not generally worked, but has worked for a ton of brands. So let's dive into Rare Beauty. So reportedly in year one, they did 60 million in revenue, which is actually not that crazy. I know of a hair care brand um, that I'll tell you the name of later, but they did 40 million in year one, completely bootstrapped off of one influencer with less than 10 million followers. Completely D to C, 100% online. You're going to tell me the name later? Is that what you said? Yeah, I don't want to mention okay. it here. Okay. So let's dive into Rare Beauty. So Rare Beauty is a brand that Selena Gomez basically, Selena Gomez became the DJ Khaled of beauty for this project. This wasn't a scenario where somebody said, I'm going to launch a beauty brand and just throw Selena on as the face. 
this was like Selena Gomez said, I want to launch a beauty brand. You know, she had her own like mental health struggles and she wanted to build a beauty company that embodied a lot of the things that she felt was lacking in the beauty and in the Hollywood industry. So, you know, I did a ton of research as to why they do so well. If you go to Sephora, by the way, do you like going to Sephora? Yeah. Go to Sephora. Sephora Sephora is like one of my favorite places to go. I've never bought anything from there, but I like, I like follow women around and they're like, why are you being so creepy? And I'm like, I'm just looking at the products you guys are buying. I couldn't care less. Every time I walk around, I think, man, people probably look at me as like, you know, Indian dude in a puffer just walking up and down. (laughs) Picking up every brand, touching every package. Yeah. Okay. I'm finished here. Yeah. So, um, so Sephora is the exclusive retailer for rare beauty. So in addition to online, they sell in Sephora. And then of course, a few other like secondary markets, like, uh, pop, whatever it is. Rare Beauty does a few things that's like pretty unique. So the interesting thing is uh, their founding team, they had a CMO on their founding team named Katie Welch, who was actually a listener to Limited Supply. So shout out to Katie. She was actually the former GM of Honest Beauty. So she had kind of, she'd sort of seen this playbook and seen how this worked in the early days and then joined the founding team about a year or two before the company launched and um, worked heavily around product development and how this is going to go to market. So a few things that they do, which really set them apart, their merchandising strategy is one of their biggest keys to success. You know, we won't even get into how their packaging is next level and super accessible and loved by people who have disabilities, but um, their merchandising is done extremely well. And it goes back to this thing we were just talking about, which is like massive top of funnel with the ability to add mass distribution. When you have crazy top of funnel, your cost of customer acquisition virtually becomes nothing. And so because of that, you can afford to do minis. And minis is why people love Rare Beauty. They can buy minis of all their products and they can sample them for cheap. They can test them for cheap. They can buy two or three at a time. And it doesn't feel like you're shilling out, you know, a ton of cash. So is a large percentage of their sales minis? I believe so. That's my guess. I wasn't able to get like much specifics, but it does drive a huge amount of trial with very low customer friction, which many brands just can't offer. And so because like this formula doesn't work for other brands, it works here. It's very similar to Feastables and Mr. Beast, right? Instead of buying a 10-pack of bars online, they can now go into Walmart and buy one for two bucks or whatever and try it right there and try different flavors. So they do that, which helps a ton. They also merchandise their products extremely well. So they come out with tons of bundles, holiday sets, gift sets, makes it very easy to buy and raise the AOV. Separately, they created such a good brand image between the brand of Rare Beauty and Selena. They're completely separate brands. They could stand alone on their own, but they also work together very well. Rare is actually one of her album names. And also the product names of all the Rare Beauty products have this positive word association, which their customers absolutely love. Now, if we dive into uh, the actual product, they have insane reviews. They have crazy like fan love for the brand. So they have over 7 billion views on TikTok about Rare Beauty. And this is just outside of Selena, right? This is like creators posting and getting hundreds of thousands of likes, just random people going to Sephora, trying the product on and posting about it, hundreds of thousands of views. And they take this approach, which a lot of beauty brands don't take, which is the, um, you know, it's the come sit with us approach. It's not the, this is a cool kids club and you can't sit with us. They're the opposite. They're like, 
yeah, this is Selena Gomez's brand, but like, come, come try it out and come sit with us here, um, which works extremely well. It feels super accessible, you know, even as a fan or as a, a customer, like if you post about it, you'll get a comment on your TikTok from the brand. If you post on Instagram stories, you'll get reposted on the main account. It feels like you can, you know, you're, you're like right there in the brand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so awesome. much authenticity. The other interesting thing is, um, you know, so Glossier does, uh, reportedly all, by the way, all the numbers I have here are just based off research. Yeah. I tried to be as credible as possible in the research. So sure. Glossier did 75 million with 454 employees. Whereas Rare Beauty did 60 million with 80 employees, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. They're heavily, heavily reliant on PR influencer and what Katie calls uh, creator community marketing, which is essentially how do we not just tap into influencers and, and industry press and, and regular press, but how do we actually get our fans the product and get them riled up and excited to talk about the product and post about it? And that's their biggest driver of awareness. According to SimilarWeb, they get 1.7 million uh, unique visitors a month, which after doing some research, I found that SimilarWeb is about a third of the real number. Um, and I asked Katie how much paid they do, and she said it's not much. So a lot of that traffic comes organically, which is also just insane. That is a crazy amount of traffic. Uh, yeah. if they, you said SimilarWeb says they do 1.7 million uniques a month. And if that's one third, you're saying that they do you know, 5 million uniques a month. I bet it's less than that, actually. I would imagine it's probably less, but I don't think it's just 1.7. Yeah. What do you think their revenue is last year in 2022? I'm not sure. I was trying to trying to figure it out. I couldn't find anything. If you had to guess, where would it be? If I had to guess, probably like close to 100, maybe. You know, one product on Sephora's site for Rare Beauty, which is merchandised very favorably on the Sephora website, yeah. one product has close to a half a million likes on the wow. product itself, wow. which is crazy. Yeah. And the other thing with Sephora that I think is super underrated that you get access to is their network of influencers, ambassadors, and creators, sure. which they meet with. Uh, you know, they have such a close relationship with, and it's like Sephora is like the the iHeart radio of the beauty industry, if they want to put somebody on, they snap fingers and you know it's it's one of the biggest brands. The thing that you said at the very beginning of this, which, which was really eye-opening to me, was um big influence and then massive distribution channel. Like mm -hmm. what Rare did really well was probably go into Sephora and get an exclusive with them in order to really grow the brand at Sephora. What Mr. Beast did with Feastables was he launched it online and then he's like, you know what I'm going to do is put this in, in 4,700 Walmarts across the United States. And so I'm not sure if either of these brands would have worked as well without you know, that massive distribution. So I think the first thing I took away which oh, from what you said is these large creator brands work when there's massive distribution involved. Totally. Let me tell you why I think you're right about two parts of that. One is there's this brand called Ebby, which I've heard about for some time. It's, uh, you know, Sofia Vergara, like the girl from Modern Family, the woman from Modern Family. She has this like underwear brand that's sort of been under the radar the whole time. She posts about it uh, once in a while on Instagram, but she doesn't have massive distribution and it's sort of not doing that. It's not like every celebrity brand knocks it out of the park, you know, for sure. Sofia is, everyone recognizes her from Modern Family. Uh, like, you know, 10, five, eight years ago when this brand launched, it was way bigger. Like, you know, she was way bigger than she is today, but it still didn't work. And I think part of that might have been uh, lacking of massive distribution. 
The other thing I think that you mentioned, sorry to uh, keep going here, that's really good is trying to turn your fans into like loyal advocates. You mentioned that every time you post on TikTok, Rare will respond to you. That's a really great idea. You know what would be awesome, and I, I bet this happens, is uh, Selena Gomez or Mr. Beast once in a while will actually respond to a post about Feastables or a post about Rare so that as somebody who's like consumed that type of merchandise, I'd be like, let me post about my a purchase of Rare from Sephora in the off chance that Selena Gomez likes my post or follows me on Instagram or Mr. Beast comments on Instagram or YouTube or something. Like, you know, if, if I got a comment or a like or a, a follow from one of these celebrities, I'd be like dancing all of them. Yeah, you'd be the world's biggest brand fan. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's a little bit of value there that's I don't know. It's like uh, the I don't know how do you monetize it or how you think about it or how you assign a value to it. But your fans are going to be way more loyal if they're like a celebrity is going to get to talk or I'm going to talk to this celebrity because I'm using this product. So we probably launched or worked with more than ten like celebrity brands. Yeah. And the biggest thing I've noticed that either will deem it to be super successful or a complete failure is how involved is the celebrity in the process of not just posting about it, but actively creating content. So like photo shoots and PR is one thing and that, that'll that do your first you know week and a half of sales. But after that, it comes down to how much, how much content is somebody making and how much are they talking about it and how real are they? You know, are they getting on live and talking about something? Are they jumping on TikTok? If you look at the difference between Rare Beauty, which again is big celebrity, also in the music industry, sold online and in Sephora and compare it to Give Beauty, which is a brand that we launched with Gwen Stefani, big celebrity, also in the music industry, sold online and in Sephora, two completely different outcomes. And I think it really comes down to the amount of content that's created and the amount of authenticity you can actually see from the outside in, especially because consumers today are not stupid. They can look at one of these brands and know right away if this is a brand with a celebrity slapped on it, or if it's really something that's created from the ground up. And you're saying the Gwen Stefani one didn't work out because the brand wasn't authentic to her. I don't want to say it didn't work out, but if you look at the similar web numbers, they're nowhere close. Yeah, completely different story. A long time ago, I met this guy named Jeff Curl. I'm not sure if you've ever met him. He used to be the CEO of Stance Socks, which is like a socks company and uh, a crazy one. They like did a bunch of research uh, to try and get their socks to be better than like regular socks, and then got them into the NBA. They're like they're more sweat lacking or something to that effect. Uh, he was like, "Look, we tried to get NBA celebrities to endorse our socks because we were trying to get into the NBA." And he's like, "I met with like he didn't tell me the name of one basketball player." And he's like, "The first question was was how much do I make per pair of socks? How many photo shoots do I have to do? How often do I have to post about it on Instagram?" Then he met with Dwayne Wade, and Dwayne Wade was like, I've always cared more about socks than everyone else in the NBA. My feet get sweaty, and so I need sweat-wicking stocks. I love Stan socks already because I, I wear them when I do this, this, and this. I really like them because they're soft. I change pairs every time I go out to play. And like the, the conversation did not center around what does a celebrity have to give. It's centered around authentic love for the brand from Dwayne Wade's heart. And he's like, you know, Jeff was like the first conversation. It didn't matter if he was ready to do this for free. I might not have taken it because all he cared about was like, it was very transactional. The D Wade conversation was very authentic and it was a conversation about the socks themselves and how much 
D Wade cared about really good socks when he played basketball. And he's like, I knew that that was the celebrity that I needed, despite the cost that he was going to uh, name. I was like, this is the guy I need because he's going to be authentic to this. It's night and day. Today, I wouldn't even talk to a celebrity brand if if it's obvious that they're just the face slapped on and they do a quarterly photo shoot. Uh, my, one of my favorite examples of doing this right, you know that sparkling tequila brand, Onda? Yeah. They had Shay on buyer calls with Total Wines. Wow. You know, like getting these people on the phone and in these meetings, that level of integration between the celebrity and the brand is like what makes these companies hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, yeah. years. Yeah, we talked about this in the last pod, which is Ryan Reynolds had done such, like Min Mobile did such a great job exactly. of becoming a Ryan Reynolds brand. There was this brand called Luxie Hair. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. It's a hair extensions brand. It was built by a couple named Alex and Mimi Icon. She's certainly a big Instagram influencer. He's a pretty good sized Instagram influencer himself. They have another business called the Five Minute Journal right now, which is huge. You know, they built Luxie Hair and they were making seven figures in EBITDA annually, you know, eight figure business, seven figures in EBITDA annually. And they built it off the back of organic YouTube acquisition. And that channel now has 3 million some subscribers. And they sold the business a little, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, a few years ago, probably just before the pandemic. And I remember having a conversation with them and they were like, you know, what's really hard is if you are the face of the brand, if you're like a mini influencer or like, you know, look, Mimi Icon is a, a legitimate influencer, but she's not as famous as Selena Gomez. And I think she'd readily admit that herself. You know, how do you sell the brand? Because people are going to be like, great, I want to buy this brand. But guess what? Nick Sharma, if you want to sell Sharma brands, guess what? I need Nick Sharma out at a bunch of uh, conferences promoting Sharma brands and hooks. You want to sell Sharma brands, I need Nick Sharma's face on t-shirts and on cereal boxes and on shoes. How do you think about that? Not necessarily from a Sharma brand's perspective, because I don't think you're trying to exit right now, but like, how do these celebrities think about that? Or is that not that big of a deal? So it's definitely thought of, I think, very early on recently. I think a, a long time ago, it wasn't thought of in that way because they weren't thinking about it working backwards from the exit. But I know, for example, Feastables was thought in that way. How do we make sure that this brand is maybe started with the fame of Mr. Beast and the brand that Mr. Beast has, but not solely built off of Mr. Beast? And you can sort of see the evolution of the brand going from you know, Mr. Beast bars to, you know, more products and not just focused on him. I also know on the opposite hand, I know that there are tons of brands that are named after celebrities. And there's a lot of people I know who have decided not to invest in these companies for that exact reason. The fear that when this thing sells, it's not going to sell for the right value because if the celebrity does not go with it, which why would they, if they're getting their payday, then it's just going to flop or the sale's not going to go through. For Rare Beauty, for example, I think they did a phenomenal job keeping the brand, the two, you know, Selena and Rare separate, but also together in a way. I think any brand that starts today generally has this thought in mind. Although the one I just mentioned, the the Chris Paul popcorn, you know, that one I think didn't do that great of a job of like separating the two. But it is like a huge investor risk, right? I think it's also a huge influencer. Like I, I remember talking to Alex and Mimi about this with Luxie Hair, and they're like, "We spent probably a year, the last year of owning Luxie Hair, getting Mimi off of there. Like she was no longer in all of the YouTube videos. She was no longer on the website. She was no longer promoting it from her own Instagram channel as much. Basically, with the idea that, hey, look, when a buyer comes and takes a look at this business a year from now, 
they're going to be like, this is the revenue that you could do with good a good executive team, but not an executive team that also is, you know, a pair of famous people because they stopped using their influence to build the business. And they said, this is what the business will look like without us. Yeah. I think it also just puts such an importance on building a solid operating team and a good product to where the brand would be successful with or without that person. Obviously, without, you'd have to spend money on advertising or find different ways to get reach. But like Rare Beauty or Feastables, these two brands would be pretty big brands because of the product and the way that they're built and their operating team, even if they didn't have the celebrity. The celebrity is, I think, like the ignition for a lot of these brands. I was looking over the numbers of Feastables. I thought it was really interesting. Um, so, you know, Feastables, I, I would say, yeah, Mr. Beast has done that. It's called Feastables. It's sold in, you know, 4,700 Walmarts, tens of millions of dollars in revenue a year. Mr. Beast Burger, maybe it's a different model and maybe he thinks about it in a different way, which is, I don't want to sell this or something to that effect. But that is, you know, it's called Mr. Beast Burger, I think. And so it's directly tied to him. I, I look similarly. I wonder how like Kylie Cosmetics does now that Cody owns a majority of it, and uh, you know it's been a couple of years. Is Kylie still like you know what? Let me work really hard here, or let me not. Like I went went to South by Southwest in 2013. I'll never forget this. I saw Ben Horowitz chatting, and somebody asked him about the WhatsApp acquisition, and they're like, "Hey, how do you feel about like you know WhatsApp just acquired got acquired for like 15 billion dollars by Facebook?" And the founders are staying on. What do you think of that? And he's like, look, the problem when you become, make founders billionaires is they call in rich. They want to work at their job. It's great. They work really hard. And then when things get really tough or there's a big problem or there's PR issues, they say, you know, I forgot I'm, the, I'm rich. I'm the billionaire. Uh, and this job doesn't matter in my life because I can afford everything I've ever wanted and then some. So I'm calling in instead of sick, I'm calling in rich. Hey, I'm rich. Uh, I'm not coming in today. Yeah, uh, you forgot. I'm already rich, and so I wonder if that happens with like the you know I have no idea if that has happened or has not, but I wonder if that does happen with the Kylie Cosmetics of the world, where the founder who was the face of it, you know, a year later, I, I'm not sure if they're still as involved. Yeah, I, and anyway, so Mr. Beast Burger I saw it does over a hundred million in revenue, and so while Mr. Beast Burger is larger than Feastables, Feastables is more profitable according to some Axios report I saw. Because Mr. Beast Burger is essentially like Uber, right? It's like yeah. the platform and the distribution, but the majority of the sales go to just like an Uber to the driver, they go to the restaurants here. Yeah. It's a very fair split to the restaurants because the whole idea was to save restaurants during the pandemic. I believe Mr. Beast has fair, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't even think that he would do an unfair thing, actually. I would assume that he does the right thing. Yeah, because he does the right thing, and people give him shit already. He's like, I, you know, I gave a thousand people, I paid for a thousand people's eye surgeries, and people are like, oh, look, we're, we have to ask, yeah. And I'm like, this guy, I mean, disabled people. I'm like, this guy paid for a surgery that those people wanted, and you're giving him shit. You paid yeah. for it, yeah. So yeah, I, I would assume that he did the right thing there. Uh, okay, so my takeaways from this are one, celebrity brands work. I think Brian Lee was early to the game, and maybe too early. But they certainly seem to have a different distribution channel now because those celebrities are big. Two is that massive distribution is probably required alongside a direct consumer presence. And three is you better start thinking of the exit right from the beginning in case something happens. Uh, like, you know, in case you're, th that celebrity is so tied to that brand that they have to go along in a way that they may not want to several years from now. 
one caveat and one addition. The ca- the only caveat to your first takeaway is I would say the celebrity brands that work are the ones where the celebrity is truly creating content, maybe even on a weekly basis. If they're not committed to being involved on a weekly basis, and it shouldn't even be a, a contractual commitment, they should want to do it. It is going to fail. The second one, which surprisingly so many celebrity brands that exist just don't do, brands that are you know, 20, 30, $40 million a year in revenue is whitelisting. Like it blows my mind that so many of these brands have access to the greatest lever in lowering CAC and increasing click-through rate, which is running ads that feel authentic from the creator, the influencer, celebrities, Instagram and Facebook and TikTok account, and they don't do it. Yeah. I wonder if they're like, hey, look, this becomes a celebrity and the brand being tied too much together. I'm not sure how they think of that. So I think authenticity is right. I would whitelist myself. I completely agree with you there. The other thing you mentioned, which was the celebrity getting involved in the sales process on a brick and like, you know, when we were selling it to Target, I made it a point to fly out to Target to like uh, talk to the Target team to be like, hey, look, I started this. I started this because I always thought that native, I built native to sit on the shelf at Target. And I'm so excited to finally have this meeting with a person at Target. You guys are my heroes. There is a little bit of like kiss the ring in every community because everyone's a human being. If I was the, you know, buyer at Target and all of a sudden, like, you know, Jay-Z flew to Minneapolis to be like, hey, I really want to put this product into Target. I would be like, fuck yeah, we're putting this into Target. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, I, and so I think they should use that influence, not just on a national scale, but also on a personal scale to move it uh, brick and mortar distribution as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. All right, Moise, you know, Kevin, who started Glamnetic? Yeah. So I texted him today because I'm like, we talk about TapCard all the time. So I texted him. I was like, yo, do you guys use TapCard for Glamnetic? Does it work well? And he said, they've had TapCard for the last few years. It works great for the most loyal customer base. It helps with a ton of product drops and they leverage the push notifications a bunch. Overall, the LTV from someone who downloaded TapCard is much higher than non-app customers. So then I said, you know, what is it like for app setup, upkeep, maintenance? Is it easy to do? And he said, overall, super easy. Didn't take long to set up. For strategy, we layer it into our overall marketing strategy to make sure we're maximizing value. And the upkeep maintenance doesn't really take much time either. That's awesome. Yeah, I think everyone who's thinking about TapCard is always like, what do I have to do to get my own mobile app? Like, do I need to design it? Do I need to get some guy to wireframe this app and then pass it along to TapCard along with colors and fonts and all that kind of stuff? Right. And it's way easier than that. You pass it like, you know, TapCard is able to lock into your Shopify store and download most of the design that they need. So Lyft is way lighter than it would be. Totally. And right now, if you go to tapcart.com slash limited, you can sign up and they will model out your incremental revenue lift you will get from the app. So go visit tapcart.com slash limited. Let's move on to ASAP because I feel like, uh, you know, we've got limited time and a lot of stuff to chat about here as well. Okay. ASAP has been for sale for several months. The business has been shopped around. Did you ever look at it when it was uh, up for sale? No, no. I, I knew it was up for sale, but I mean, you know, LVMH was looking at it. Shiseido was looking at it. I never saw the deck. This week or maybe last week now, they announced that they're doing, they're selling the business for $2.5 billion to L'Oreal. It's the biggest acquisition that L'Oreal has ever done. It's all cash, no stock. Aesop, for people who don't know, is this like luxury soap business, basically. It was founded in Australia. It's got these beautiful bottles. You know, the bottle sold for $50 or $60 a piece. It was bought like in December of 2012. So almost a decade ago, exactly. 
this private equity firm in Brazil bought 65% of ASOP for $50 million. So they took a two-third stake in the business for $50 million a decade ago. It was probably doing about 50 million US in sales at the time in 2012, 2013. So they bought a 65% stake, you know, $50 million in cash, and it was doing about $50 million a year. It's a 33x ROI. Yeah, you're right. That is crazy in a decade. So I looked at the ASAP, like ASAP basically, or the guys, the private equity firm, the Brazilian private equity firm called Natura that owns ASAP. They also own the Body Shop and Avon. Mm-hmm. And so they uh, released an annual report that I took a look at. And, um, you know, when this deal got done, a bunch of people were like, uh, I saw a bunch of Twitter people be like, hey, this is great. This is their new multiple that is represented in the community. Um, <laughs> you know, this is a good multiple. This is what we should expect too, right? We're a million dollar a year business. We should expect these multiples too. And I was like, no, this is yeah. not the case. ASOP is a unique brand and you are not, a- virtually nobody is ASOP. But let me tell you a little bit about the numbers that they did. Yeah. Okay. So in 2018, they did 210 million in revenue. 2020, 375 million. 2022, 537 million dollars in revenue. So they're growing at a 20% clip basically year over year. Very healthy. Really healthy growth for such a large business. And the other thing is they're also growing EBITDA. So in 2018, they did 210 million with 32 million EBITDA. In 2020, 375 million, 120 million in EBITDA. And keep in mind, 2020 was COVID, so everyone's EBITDA looked a little healthier, especially if you were selling soap. Uh, 2022, 537 million, 116 million dollars in EBITDA. Very healthy growth from a top and bottom line perspective. 20% year-over-year revenue growth, 22% EBITDA margins. Where do you buy ASAP? Actually, I'm really curious about this. Where do you buy ASAP? Do you have? Do you ever buy it? Yeah, just from the store, I think in West Village or so. In Aesop store, you go into the Aesop store. Okay, yeah. They've got 400 stores and like beauty counters that they sell at. Uh, You know, what's interesting is I buy it from Amazon and the stores are a little intimidating for me because I feel like I'm going to go in there and be like, what are your prices? And I'm like, (laughs) like, I have to leave. So I look at Amazon and it takes me a couple of days to build up the courage to be able to. (laughs) You use the buy now, pay later. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's not crazy. So now, now when I look at things like this, I take the Moise Ali approach. I go straight to the stock. I'm like, all right, what did L'Oreal do in the last few years? So L'Oreal is one of the few stocks, consumer brands, that has just crushed. They started at about 50 bucks when the pandemic started. They hit 96 at their pandemic peak, and now they're about 89, 90. So great stock. You know, this joins some of the, it is obviously their biggest acquisition. It joins like a few others that are, some huge ones, Maybelline New York, which does two and a half billion in revenue, has 4,000 employees. It joins Garnier, which was started, I think, back in a long time ago. Uh, joins Nick's Makeup, which does almost a half a billion in revenue. Sarah V, which does a billion. And this company, Redken, which was a Hollywood brand started in the 1960. What else is interesting is there's been so much activity in the skincare, personal care, cosmetics, and beauty world. Just last year, we saw PNG bought Tula. L Octane bought Grown Alchemist. I think Estee Lauder bought Decium, which owns the Ordinary. Yeah. Bic, which is the the lighter and the ballpoint pen. They bought Inkbox, which is the temporary tattoo. Wella bought Briogeo, which is a massive hair care brand. And then of course Church and Dwight bought Hero Cosmetics. 
I have a list of brands that I think are going to be the next big acquisitions in this space, but also just generally in this skincare category, it is on fire. And so I was like, how the fuck are all these brands doing so well and all hitting home runs? It's like, there's not a skincare brand that I've seen that generally fails. Like they all do really well. Well, even if they're a tiny skincare brand, they're doing so well. And, and re really it comes down to this. One is like they're insanely high margin. There was a skincare brand I looked at buying uh, probably three or four years ago, you know, sells for $99 for like their face cream, $8 to produce, which leaves so much room to acquire customers, especially if you build like, you know, a, a build your own bundle box of three products or you sell some sort of a starter kit, you know, you're making like, let's call it two, 300 bucks in profit right there. Sure. Leaves so much room to acquire. It's all a game about marketing. There's very little loyalty in this category, which is your biggest enemy, but also your biggest uh, friend. Only about 14% of people surveyed a couple years ago would continue to purchase solely from a brand. Majority of people are pretty open to diversifying. And a lot of people too, from just what I've noticed, they have different brands for different things. One brand for their serum, one brand for their soap, one brand for shampoo. The other interesting thing is like the beauty industry doesn't give a fuck about sustainability and neither do their customers. It's very rare that a beauty company actually cares about sustainability. And that's like also one of the biggest advantages is they can just keep producing and launching. And the last thing that I thought was interesting about Aesop was, you know, it started as a single product. It started as a shampoo in a salon. And from there, they expanded and launched all these things. And the other interesting thing, like as it's got, you know, Aesop was traded into Natura and then out of Natura into um, L'Oreal. It's hit this level of a brand, which is where I think the 33X comes from. It's got this brand moat built into it, similar to other companies we've seen get bought and sold, Kate Spade, Supergoop, Juicy Couture. You're not even buying the brand's history. like You're buying the future state of what the brand could be. So L'Oreal is buying what they think they can do with Aesop over the next 10 or 20 years, and then they might trade it again to somebody else. L'Oreal tends not to trade as, uh, that frequently, but yeah, I think you're right about all those things. Uh, here's what I thought was interesting. One is I've never seen an Aesop ad in my entire life. Yeah, um, same. I just know what Aesop is, and I have no, like, you know, where I've seen it work really well is high-end restaurants having Aesop in their bathroom. I don't know how these guys did this. But every time I go into a high-end bathroom, like a nice restaurant, I go to the bathroom, they've got ASAP. I'm like, oh, this restaurant is even nicer than I thought. Yeah. Not like, you know, and so high-end restaurants put in ASAP to make themselves look better. And now there's 400 clones of their bottle too. Like they have this iconic, beautiful, like dark striped bottle. If you go to Erwan, they sell the exact same bottle silhouette with a different label on it because they're like, hey, we want to sell something for slightly cheaper. Erwan's not even that much cheaper. And I think Grown Alchemist sort of has the same silhouette now. It's sort of copied Aesop as well. So I think that they did a great job with that. I think one, I, I'm in shock that Aesop has, I've never seen an ad. They have a million Instagram followers, not that much for a $2.5 billion brand that virtually everyone has heard of. They've done a fantastic job of marketing themselves, not through social media, but by associating themselves with high-end restaurants, high-end hotels. Like that's where you go in and you use Aesop. I bet everyone who has Aesop puts it in their guest bathroom and never uses it themselves. Like if you're in their bathroom, they're using like soft soap. But in yeah. case guests come over, you're like, here's my Aesop. They did a great job of that. And frankly, you know, um, 
I remember like when I would go buy soap when I lived in New York City, I'd be like, should I buy this? And I'd go to Dwayne Reed and I'm like, should I buy the Dwayne Reed brand that costs 90 cents? I was like, let me spring for the soft soap that costs a dollar twenty. So my guests don't think I'm a cheap motherfucker. You rich guy. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but like now, like, you know, these guys said, hey, the soap in your bathroom is a statement about who you are and what you care about and whether you care about design and style. And so they did a great job of creating that brand by associating themselves with hotels and restaurants in a way that I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone else do, and I'm not sure how they did it. So no ads, which is crazy. Um, the other thing is, in 2020, they said 30% of their sales came from Aesop.com, which is $10 million a month on Aesop.com. Now, this was COVID, so it might have been just a COVID bump. You know, you went back to why did L'Oreal buy them? I think you're absolutely right that L'Oreal bought them because they see what the brand can be as well. You know, the brand is, I think of the brand as soap and uh, moisturizer because that's what they have like outside their stores as well that you can use for free when you're walking right. by, which is where I like fill up my travel bottles from. <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't think of them as a cosmetics brand, but I think they have the opportunity to be a cosmetics brand. And so I think you're right. With the, with the, uh, the other interesting thing that I think of is, yeah, so no social media presence, Great job branding themselves with hotels and restaurants, and huge opportunity in front of them to expand beyond personal care into you know beauty and cosmetics in a way that they haven't that's uh, so far. Yes, they're in shampoo and conditioner. They're not in facial cleansers really well. They're not in moist like you know they're not in facial moisturizers. They're not in SPF. They're not in like the beauty meets skincare space. Yeah, they're not even trying to do any of like the functional shit that all these other new companies do. They're they're just extremely simple. And it's like, they're almost like, we know what we're really good at. We know you're going to buy. And 22% EBITDA margins are super hot. Like direct to consumer businesses generally don't have that much because they have to spend so much in advertising. These guys have super, you know, cheap cost of goods sold and very high product margins here. One other thing that I wanted to mention that I thought was really interesting was um, virtual consultations. You can go on their website right now and book a virtual consultation with like not a dermatologist, but an ASOP specialist who will be like, we recommend that you use these three products. Here's your cart. It's $150. Go buy it. And I think that's so smart of them. I'm, you know, I saw this on their website and I was like, why are there not other e-commerce brands doing this? Why is a brand that sells a $70 facial care product not allowing you to book time with a dermatologist or, you know, I would have, I would actually hire a dermatologist, the cheapest dermatologist I could find in bumfuck Alabama. And I'd be like, when someone has a virtual consultation, you sell them Tula skincare, you sell them Drunk Elephant, you sell whatever you want, to, like you sell your brand to them. But let me have a dermatologist tell you that you should do this because I think that offer a lot of credibility and a hundred dollar price point. You might be able to afford it if you could do 15 minute sessions. That's a good business idea. Like almost like a, it's like a marketplace, but the only way to shop is through a dermatologist. We'll build a farm of dermatologists, all these Indian kids who get shit on for not being doctors, we'll make you a dermatologist and you come work for us. So one, that's exactly what Curology is. I think I saw somewhere uh, online that said, a Curology dermatologist approves your application or approves your medicine in under 60 seconds. So they barely have seen you before they're like, here's your meds. I'm just wondering why, like, uh, what's like, you know, Boom by Cindy Joseph is an Ezra Firestone brand or was? You know, I don't know what his AOV is, but let's say his AOV was $100 or a, he was selling products for $100 each. He should sort of say, hey, book a consultation with us. Fulton is this Dr. Scholl's competitor where you can, uh, like, doc, they should say, hey, have knee pain, book a consultation with us so we can tell you why Fulton is better for you. 
Yeah, there's also just so much more trust built into that sales process too. Yeah, uh, and I'm surprised that more people aren't doing this. The final thing I thought about Aesop was there's a lot of brands, like a lot of beauty brands that I think that sell that are very trendy and will not become like legacy brands. A good example of that is like Drunk Elephant. Drunk Elephant was way bigger five years ago than it is today. Like everyone was talking about Drunk Elephant five years ago. It had that matte white packaging. It had interesting colors. It had interesting components where like, you know, the cap, you'd spin the cap and the top would pop up and it looked really interesting. Today, Drunk Elephant isn't what it was five years ago. Aesop is just getting started. I think Aesop becomes a legacy brand like Lancome or L'Oreal or Maybelline in a way that we're talking about it 10 years ago and it's still relevant 10 years so I started digging in because I also realized I'd never seen an ad for Aesop. So I was wondering, how did these guys go from, you know, they bought it for 50 million, 65 or 66%, and it was doing 28 million in revenue to now doing 537 million in revenue, 23% margin. And so I basically found, you know, five things that they did really well. The first was they went international pretty heavily. So they focused on opening these beautiful retail stores in high traffic places and in very upscale parts of different cities. The second one is sort of off of that is this beautiful store experience. So it's not just like the store you walk into, but they combine this thing, which is they combined this like rich, luxurious, aspirational, you know, you can't touch it, but you can sort of feel it feeling that you get with high-end products. And their stores do a really good job of infusing like local elements or local culture so that it feels like the brand is truly local to wherever you're shopping from. The third one is they did a ton of product innovation. So, you know, as you build this loyal customer base, the easiest lever you have to generate revenue is drop new products. And obviously you have to maintain the quality of your product, but they did a really good job with this. The fourth yeah. one is they leaned into partnerships with brands, artists, designers, and tons of limited edition products, which of course they lead to sales. But the best thing is that they get people talking. You know, Truff does a really good job of this. You know, Truff Ranch is not going to be a billion dollar product line for them, or Truff and Super Mario is not going to be a multi million dollar game changer for the business. But what it does from an earned media standpoint and owned media, like what they can do on their socials and then with their content. And what press talks about or creators or influencers talk about, it goes such a long way. It's like you're you're basically buying advertising at pennies on the dollar. And the last one is their customer service is like next level. If you go into a store, their store associates know everything and anything about the product as well as online. And, you know, kind of ties back to their virtual consultation as well. Yeah, the stores are beautiful. And I think you can like wash your hands in there, like, you know, uh, like go, like they've got sinks. It is really nice. It almost feels like a spa when you walk in. Yeah. And even like the mood, like it's never too bright, it's never too yeah. dark. Yeah. It's perfectly lit. You're just in the mood. You feel rich as soon as you walk in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you better be rich actually when you walk in. <laughs> You'll be poor when you walk out. That's right. Uh, okay. Let's move on to the Stripe annual letter. Uh, I think we might have to do a bunch of these other things in the next episode, but let's move on to the Stripe annual letter and see how far we get. Perfect. Um, let me start by saying I'm an investor in Stripe, so uh, everything here uh, take with a grain of salt because I'm an investor, but all of this is a public letter that uh, the two brothers- yeah, nothing you're going to say is uh, privately told to you. Yeah, it's all yeah, publicly. I just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't have any unique access to Stripe. Um, it's just uh, in a public letter that they released. And this is what they talked about. They said, 
They did $817 billion in revenue. I'm sorry, they processed $817 billion in transactions last year, which was up 26% from the year before. And you know, they wrote for a comparison, e-commerce grew 7% overall. So we're growing faster than e-commerce in general. But here's what I thought was really interesting, which was really just they talked about how how much room there is to improve the checkout process, despite the fact that e-commerce is pretty mature. A long time ago, I thought about starting this business that did one click, like, you know how Amazon has one-click checkout? Mm-hmm. I was going to create a business that did one-click checkout across the internet, which I knew- You should have launched fast. <laughs> yeah. I know now it's been done. Uh, but at the time, Amazon held a patent for one-click checkout in the United States. That patent has since expired. They tried to get the same patent in Europe and they never could. But in any case, uh, I don't know why I just thought of that. But in any case, Stripe talked about how much room there is to improve the checkout process today, even in 2023. They said 10% of payments fail for no good reason. Lots of unforced errors when it comes to conversion rates. And they gave one tip. They're like, on billions of data points, basically, that they have, let's say you have to put in the expiration date of your credit card, mm-hmm. Okay. You can either make it so the person roll like you know has like a little wheel and they can put in the expiration month and year on an iPhone so they can like do a wheel and say April 2025 you know 04 2025 or you can have them type in the dates. If you're not looking at the agenda, which one do you think is better? Scrolling on the wheel or typing in the dates? My UX says scrolling. My performance brain says typing. Okay. Pick one. You, you're doing a class. You should run for politics. Yes. Yeah. You choose to answer. You I'm going to answer. Governor. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to go with scrolling because genuinely, before I saw this, that's what I believe was the, the better choice. If I had to choose on a site, I would have chosen that. Typing is better. They're like wow. billions of data points. We've realized that scrolling dates for an expiration is worse than letting customers type in the month and year. Which I thought was really. Did it say what percentage of? Okay, that's crazy though. Yeah, that is crazy. What's also interesting about these guys is they're doing this thing called like adaptive uh, acceptance, which is trying to figure out a way to get the card approved when you're like trying to purchase something, even though it may not be approved. And there's a great example of this, which is like if you have a subscription, let's say you have a subscription Netflix. We'll use that because it's the one that everyone probably has and your card expires. Well, Netflix doesn't want to email you and say, hey, Nick Sharma, please update your card on Netflix because you're going to forget to do that for several months. Their subscription might lapse. They're going to lose money. You might have a worse time because you don't have Netflix. Or you might realize, I don't need Netflix. I forgot that I added this credit card charge. Fuck it. I'm out. Yeah. And so what they what Stripe has done is they've tried to make it so that if the expiration date has changed on the card, like let's say you're issued a new card because your card expires in March 2023 and you're issued a new one, Stripe is trying to create this adaptive acceptance using machine learning so that it can charge your new card. I don't know how they know your what your new card is, but charge your new card rather than your old card without you having to update your card. That is crazy. And they charge extra for that? No, they don't charge extra for that. Okay. That's crazy because, so I know like even personally, when I when I get a new MX card, my old number that's saved in Google Chrome still works. And for online transactions, it still works. And I think it's because American Express recognizes, okay, this company has made a purchase or a, has a history of the purchase with this card before. So we should continue to allow it 
And it's almost like they hold on to the payment token. The payment token is like sort of the key that unlocks that. Oh, I love that you mentioned that. We're going to get to tokens in just one second. Uh, but, uh, they, the Stripe says that are these on-the-fly optimizations increase revenue by an average of 0.7% across their businesses. I would have thought it would be more given like a Netflix, for example. Think about how many people just, I mean, I don't think I've ever changed my car to Netflix. Me neither. Now that I think about it, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure if Stripe powers Netflix. Like it could okay. be somebody else. So sure. I'm not sure what it is. But um, Stripe did send emails to their stores about two weeks ago saying, hey, we are now going to start charging for storing tokens, payment tokens. For a long time, Stripe never charged for that. Braintree still doesn't charge for that as far as I understand it. And so, you know, that's fucked up. All of a sudden they're like, look, you have a payment token stored on Stripe. We're going to charge for that. One business that forwarded me this email said, like Stripe emailed them and said, hey, you're going to be charged about $20,000 next year for all the tokens that you have associated with Stripe. Could you share the revenue of the subscription revenue of that business compared to the 20K in- It's, um, it's definitely an eight-figure business. I don't know what their subscription revenue is, frankly. I, like, I, like, I know it's an eight-figure business, but I'm not so in the weeds of that business. Like, I don't know the business well enough to know what the subscription revenue is, but it's an eight-figure-a-year business. Stripe said they're going to be charged $20,000 to store these tokens. And I don't know how this makes sense, but it says the biz your business realizes an extra $120,000 in revenue because we have these tokens. That's bullshit. Yeah. So one, that's a lot of charge. Like that's, you know- they're going to make almost 20% millions off of that. That's right. If this happens across the board and is accepted across the board, Stripe's revenue will go up materially. Like I would say 10% probably yeah. by charging. That's basically like a bait and switch. Yeah. Uh, they said, hey, we're going to start in June. So you've got some time. But yeah, that is fucked up. And I would imagine a lot of smaller businesses. I mean, if you're on Shopify, you're using Shopify checkout already. But I would imagine if you're on like WooCommerce or somebody else. Well, even, even on Shopify, right? Like every subscription platform is basically, it's just UI. Like it, subscription platforms don't do anything that special unless you're building extra features on top. They all live in Stripe. Like for when you buy a business and you you take over a business, you have to transfer all the Stripe tokens from you know your the previous owner to your new Stripe account. And um, the fact that they're going to charge on that, it's kind of crazy. It's not going to, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a huge percentage of subscription revenue at all, but it's more dollars taken away from the bottom line. That's exactly what it is. And I think it's like 15 cents per card per month or maybe per year. I don't remember the exact rate, but it's not nothing. Yeah, that's a, that's a decent chunk, fifteen cents per dollar. Uh, my guess charge. is this: if this works, it increases Stripe's revenue ten percent a year. Yeah, um, and that's a big increase that like went through with an email that like you know a lot of people have not been talking about. Wouldn't the somebody like the FTC try to step like this? The same people who blocked the Harry's acquisition wouldn't they step in and say something here? Like you know you're just fucking over all these small businesses. A lot of people are fucking over, like, you know, uh, ShipStation. ShipStation used to charge, you know, you could print out labels and they charge you per user that you have, like per seat. Now they charge you per order that you ship on ShipStation. Like yeah. if you have 100 orders, they charge you a different price than if you have 50 orders. Did you see um, Sean from Ridge, his thread about the future of SaaS? No. What he so he, he basically said, like, a lot of these SaaS companies that exist, especially the ones that charge based on order volume or just charge in an outrageous manner. 
with the future of uh, like chat GPT, for example, the ability to write your own applications and use your own apps. Like you could basically, you know, Moise Ali can have all his own Moise Ali apps for reviews and analytics sure. and subscription. So many of these apps are going to be non-existent. And I feel like, you know, payments is obviously different, but something like a ship station can very easily become obsolete if they don't try to get ahead of this. Yeah, I, I think it could become obsolete. I think that like there is, a, there should be a race to the bottom with a lot of these software providers. And I'm surprised there hasn't been yet. Like, so far, switching costs have been high. Like it's really hard to switch off of Clavio, for instance. It's really hard off to switch off of Stripe. But if you make those switching costs really low, like Sendlane is trying to do with Clavio, and if you, you know, if you offer cheaper pricing, I can see that happening very easily. Like we're both investors in Okendo. I can see people leaving Okendo if somebody sure. says, like, look, hey, I'm a hundred dollars a month flat fee. You can move all of your reviews in one click. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Let me wrap up by telling you a few tips that I have at checkout. And you tell me if you have any tips at checkout as well, which I've realized uh, doing customer service for you know a decade in e-commerce. One is, this is so stupid, put a lock next to your checkout button that says, this checkout is secure. I kid you not, people would email me a native when we were on WooCommerce and they'd be like, there's no lock on your checkout button, so I didn't purchase. And I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck you, are you, is this a joke? Am I being punked right now? And they're like, no, there's no lock. And I'm like, you want me to add a fucking image of a lock? You want me to download a Google image and yeah. put the image of a lock locked? And now you're going to purchase. What if I put it unlocked? What if I make it unlocked? Then you're going to be like, oh, no, 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 I don't want that. <laughs> so uh, put an image of a lock because crazy people believe that that helps and say this checkout is secure. Yep. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you're on Shopify, all of this is taken care of for you, but you can still add a lot more in the Shopify checkout. Yeah, that's right. The other thing is like, you know, when you're putting in the fields, make sure like on mobile, everything, uh, like if you're opening up the zip code field or the credit card field, make sure the number pad pops up. Like, I can't tell you the number. Yes. Oh my God. I ate when the fucking keyboard with the full alphabet pops up for a zip code. Yeah, yeah. Or, or like the expiration date or credit card. I'm like, it's a credit card. There's no letters associated with this thing. What are you talking about? So a lot of times when you, it, this happens mostly in apps, but also a lot online, the coding of the field is not done right. And so in Apple, especially on the iPhone, if it's, for example, a, a phone number field, it'll pop up and suggest to one click your email in or your credit card number in instead of the right thing that it's supposed to be. Very easy fix. But probably, again, you're just like losing opportunity. So I think those numbers are incredibly important. I don't understand why. Like a lot of small like small business restaurants won't have this correct. Like if you're like doing to-go orders at Mendo Farms or like a you know, True Food, they'll be like, hey, put in your credit card number and the keyboard will pop up and that's destroying conversion rates. Yeah. And Shopify does this, which doesn't make any sense to me, is they ask for one field twice. Like they'll say, what is your billing address? And then when you're checking out... They'll say, put in your credit card field and then your billing zip code again. And I'm like, you already have my billing address. You have the zip code from there. You don't need it again here. But they ask for it in both places. And I don't know why they do that. Don't ask for the same field twice ever. The other thing I'd say is put your email, uh, request the email address first. That should be the first thing. That That's how it is in Shopify. That's, how, that's not always how it is in Woo. But that's the first field that will get filled out. And so if someone abandons checkout, you can email them because you have their email address. 
Uh, the other thing I'd say is if you again, if you're not on Shopify uh, and you're not using Google like address autocomplete, like you know, if I'm typing in, yeah, uh, if you if you're not using that, ask for the zip code first so that you can fill out city fill and in state. the rest. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You don't need you know you got a zip code. You don't need city and state. Yeah, like you've got it. Don't ask for that shit. Don't ask for state when you have zip code. Yeah, especially in 2023, you look it's like crazy. an idiot. It's unbelievable. Um, the other one there too is the is like the validator, so that when you do check out, it just double checks to make sure the apartment is written the right way or the street is spelled the proper way. I never do that because I'm always like, okay, just email the customer after we got the order. Don't fuck with the order right here. Oh, that's an interesting take. But it, it requires more customer service. But I'm like, don't fuck with this order right now. Take the order. We'll deal with everything afterwards. The other thing I uh, suggest is don't confirm the CVC. I know this is this is crazy because you will get more fraud if you're not confirming the CVC number. Fuck it. You're an e-commerce business. You know you're advertising on Facebook. If you're getting a ton of fraud, if you like, you know, one of my friends had this bit uh, has this business, and they were like, we get fraud. Like some guy realized that we're not checking to see they were on Crate Joy, okay, a long time ago. And they were like, some guy in like Honduras is constantly checking whether credit cards work on our website. So he's like, every day we get like 400 orders from Honduras. And every day we know we have to refund him. And we emailed the guy and we're like, please go to somebody else's website. We're a small business. Go find somebody else to fuck with. And he would never go find someone else to fuck with. So yeah, they should confirm CVC. But otherwise, I say don't confirm it. Deal with the fraud. You will lose more chargebacks, but you will get a higher conversion rate. And that will almost always make sense, both from a revenue perspective, an EBITDA perspective, and evaluation of your business perspective. So I always say don't, you know, you're always trying to optimize. Uh, A lot of times I have bailed on companies because I'm like, I think I got my CVC right. Uh, It's not working. I'm not going to pull out my credit card. Fuck leave. Yeah. Yeah. I wish there was something on, uh, I, I wonder if this would work. On mobile phones where you go and you say, I want to buy something. Yeah, I want to buy this hat that says press publish. And I just say complete order and it shoots me an email and it reminds me, hey, don't fill out, don't forget to fill out your information when you get to your desktop. Totally. Once a day, it just says fill out your information so you can complete your order. You don't need to do anything on your mobile phone because it's too hard. I wonder if that would work. Yeah. The last tip, which you didn't mention that you love, which is coming to Shopify, is the single page checkout. Yeah. Yeah. When is that coming to Shopify? I, I, like, I was thinking I'm about supposed that. to get a couple brands into the beta over the next week or so. So hopefully I'll have a store I can share where everybody can go play with it. I'm shocked that it's taken Shopify so long to come out with it. I feel like it's been a better... When we were when Native was on WooCommerce and had a single page checkout, our conversion rate was significantly higher than when Native moved to Shopify. And the only change we made was WooCommerce to Shopify. And Shopify's checkout was worse. Right. And like, you know, everyone else, everyone uses Shopify. Nobody uses WooCommerce. Shopify has billions of dollars. WooCommerce is open source and has zero money. Uh, They need to do that. And I'm glad that they're doing it. Totally. All right. This is our time. What are we talking about in the next episode? I We're going to talk about uh, Facebook cost caps. We're going to talk about Honest Company. We're going to talk about Klaviyo and Attentive. And uh, maybe we'll talk about some offshoring, how to use employees in different countries. Can't wait. Uh, This was a great episode one. This was a banger season four opener. Yeah. All right. This is going to be a good season. Yeah, this was good. By the way, if you listen to this episode and you liked it, we love all the feedback on Twitter. Please tweet us. Let us know if you liked it. Also, go to limitedsupplypod.com. Join the Slack group. We have a few hundred people in there. It is popping off. We've got channels. We've got 
landing page feedback channels. We've got Facebook channels. You know, Moyes and I are in there and just talking and, you know, spending the day here. So come through, say what's up, introduce yourself. There's actually a lot of really cool people that have joined the Slack. So I'm shocked that we got some awesome people. I cannot believe how successful that Slack channel got after one episode of dropping it. Like there's more than 400 people, conversations happening all the time. I'm probably having three conversations a day in there. Uh, it's super useful to me. Uh, I cannot believe how well it's gone. I thought I was like, I'm not sure how well this is going to come out. It's been phenomenal. You know what we should do? If you think you would be a good community manager for the limited supply Slack, shoot me and Moise a DM, either one of us or email us and tell us exactly why. What would you do? Why would you be a good community manager? We'll pay you. You'll be in the Slack and um, you know, you'll be a part of the limited supply team. Yeah, one of the things I want to prevent from happening is our Slack channel becoming a place where agencies just pitch themselves all the time totally. and piss on everybody else. So great point. Yeah, we definitely need that. Cool. All right. That's it for episode one. We'll see you next week on episode two. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one.